0: Blockchain, blockchain is transfer what is value. Blockchain?
1: Who feels like they understand blockchain? 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 we can be human. How can they Once utopia can be another person.
0: Turn off your phone, lock your door, and study this technology for a day. It's a the best lot problem. of the blockchain initiatives never knew. Sometimes that we are trying to put blockchain feels
2: really exciting to be involved in
0: blockchain
3: From from us. Maybe save your podcast from blockchain. Technology saves society the technology shaped by the society. So it's, it goes two ways.
4: This is White Papers on Dissent, my ongoing research about blockchain as a tool for radical imagination. And I'm Barbara Cueto, curator and researcher working at the intersection of activism, new technologies and contemporary art. White Papers on Descent is a nomadic project. We will be hearing extras recorded during the panel discussions and presentations at the discursive program that took place at the Van Aver Museum in Eindhoven in the Netherlands. This is episode two of White Papers on Descent. In this episode, we will be looking more closely at blockchain technologies, how they could be used as a tool for organizing, collaboration, and as a way to decentralize society. So if you're expecting to learn more about cryptocurrencies or NFTs, this is probably not your podcast. We're going to delve into other alternative and potential uses of blockchain. So let's start with Balas Bodo, economist and social legal researcher at the Institute for Information at the University of Amsterdam, who we heard from in the previous episode. He suggests that as with any new technologies, humans tend to place way too much weight and hope on how they can improve the way we live. As he points out, we tend to get it wrong, and the outcomes are often quite different than the expectations.
0: I would like to remind you that the three Bs, Barlow, Bankler, and Bitcoin, are also like three waves of utopian thinking. Barlow uh, saying in 1996 that internet will lead to a new future. And then 10 years later, when Web 1.0 went to shit, then. Yohai Bankler came and said we have Web2.0 and this will change everything and then 10 years later when Web2.0 went to the dogs, Bitcoin rose to mainstream and uh, promised Web3.0 promising that within on this technological foundation social utopia will happen.
3: I want to focus attention on the idea not only of storing data like for example transactions of cryptocurrency in a decentralized way, but also in the idea of executing in a decentralized way.
0: The aspirational ideological approach to this is that Uh, based on these knowledge assumptions, what we'll have is a sovereign space which is able to grow in isolation and develop in isolation from everything else it's embedded in, whether that's geopolitics or existing social, economic, political structures. Second, that it's counter-hegemonic, so it somehow will be different from the existing power relations. And third, that it's comprehensive, so it's not just a technology, it's technology plus social organization. It's not just technology, it's a new form of policy, or it's a new form of body politic. it's a new form of economy.
4: We just had from Palas Bodo and peer-to-peer model researcher David Rozas, who have very different approaches. They are both talking about the potential of decentralization and how it could create fairer societies, moving from one main authority to decision-making that is shared amongst the different nodes. This decentralized coordination mechanism is supposed to provide autonomy to the individuals as well as create stronger organizations, because the system is tamper-proof and censorship-resistant. Palace Bodo suggests that ecological utopia happens every 10 years, meaning that blockchain is just the last embodiment. Whereas David Rozas believes in the potential of technology.
0: What kind of knowledge is being shared or what kind of knowledge is being produced via or through or with blockchains and what kind of power structures that may lead to? If you approach this problem from the question of what is knowledge on blockchain, then you arrive to a very strange picture because on the one hand, knowledge is the lack of knowledge, like it's anonymity like it's a zero knowledge proofs. It's also a lack of knowledge about the trustworthiness of the others. It's based on this fundamental assumption that no one is trustworthy. So on the one hand, there is no knowledge. And on the other hand, it's full knowledge. It's transparency. It's immutability. It's objectivity. It's oracles. But it's also garbage in and garbage out. So the question is, based on this knowledge foundations, what kind of power relations we can imagine. And this is where aspirations and realities start to diverge.
4: Someone who has been examining the relationship that people has with knowledge, specifically data and technology, is Larissa Blazic.
5: Yeah, so hi, my name is Larissa Blazic and I'm a, i am I guess, a academic and artist and a, um, feminist hacker, I've been called as well because I was working on a project a couple of years ago that was investigating a concept of union and unionizing in relationship to personal data. It was called Data Union Folk and it was meant to reflect on kind of a distributed ledger technology that was developed by dyne.org collective as the wider attempt to deal with privacy surveillance free software kind of relationships and experimentations and in that time i was working as part of a space called common house which housed several activist groups and was co-run and in relation to blockchain and activism it's like a big leap now from one thing to another but in in experience in working with all of these activist groups it was fascinating to see such a possibly strong word technical illiteracy or technophobia even within activist groups it really felt urgent to educate and to kind of collaborate on developing practices and behaviors which are protective And in the case of blockchain, today is like, what is activism in the field of blockchain? Who is doing interesting and exciting stuff?
4: The need to use a particular technology is always a contentious issue. Why do we need it or who's benefiting from it are questions that often come up when we talk about blockchain for social organizing. For example, in relation to the commons, which we mentioned in the previous episode. Here are Balas Bodo and David Rozas again.
0: So I see blockchains as a form of tailorism, right? It it measures things very strictly and then automatizes certain social practices. The commons is a very social, very human, very liquid, very breathing, very communicative way of laboring. You have to labor to maintain a commons. Now I would like to ask like, why on earth would you want to tailorize this labor? Why do you think it's a good idea in the first place? It's like, what kind of arguments you can bring to tailorize something that has managed to avoid tailorism for so long?
3: I don't have the answer. I think we might want to experiment and when we experiment, we might need, like for example, with quantifying no, certain forms of, of contribution that traditionally have been less visible, we might quantify them, and well, we quantify them, we might destroy the dynamics and completely agree. Like if we start quantifying affected labor. My answer would be, it's interesting to experiment with it because we don't know what is gonna happen. So as far as like we don't destroy the communities, if we are able to you know, say, okay, this is the system of value that is working here. Can we, for example, quantify this? And then we can experiment without making damage to the community. We might learn something from there. Although we need to be really, really aware that when we introduce, tools and blockchain-based tools, we might disrupt this dynamic. So we have to minimize completely that. How we do that is by putting it out, like experimenting outside, let's say. So we don't intervene until we are sure that if their community really wants to adopt those, that's perfect. But uh, if they don't want to, we haven't damaged it. Can we build perspectives of blockchain-based governance that incorporate the commons perspectives? Basically, we rely massively on Eleanor Ostrom's principles The Word of Ostrom basically debunked the the myth of the tragedy of the commons and as part of her work she identified a set of principles in some communities, her studies particularly on managing natural resources. And then there was a lot of work as well in trying to bring these principles into digital commons. The example I'm going to be using to talk about the affordances is GIFINET. GIFINET is basically an internet service provider in which the infrastructure is maintained as a commons, so it's a community network, quite big in uh, rural areas of Catalonia, particularly. The key thing the commons here is the infrastructure.
4: I'm also a VIFI user myself, and this is quite a common structure in the north of Spain, not only in Catalonia, and in the north of Spain we had really bad communications, And it's very mountainous and it's very rural. So because of these reasons, it's actually not very profitable for big companies to start a proper internet infrastructure from scratch. So people decided to collaborate and to work together to build one. So we have to understand also the context. In the north of Spain, especially where I come from, which is Asturias, is a region where the agricultural commons are fully functioning still. And we also have a lot of cooperatives dealing with local produce, such as milk or cider. So one could say that this way of collective organization is actually quite a natural decision because we organize digital infrastructures as we would do with any other commons. So this brings us back to Elinor Ostrom.
6: This is not an easy thing to organize, uh, but people have been working on it very hard. There are problems of scam and all sorts of problems of this sort. Even in farmers markets around the world, you sometimes will find some people coming in a vegetable stand and having rotten fruit underneath the good fruit. So, I don't know any institution that works perfectly in all circumstances.
4: These are political economies that define eight principles in Commons Management. David Rozas follows them to explain the workings of IFI. We will hear some of them now.
5: We
3: basically identify these six affordances. The first one, tokenization. For example, in the case of GIFINET, we have tokens for who belongs to a certain node or to measure and distribute value among the network. But you can think beyond the, the case of GIFINET. Uh, it's the idea that through the use of blockchain, we can more easily and more granularly define the rights. We can more easily propagate them. We can more easily revoke them.
4: This refers to Elinor Ostrom's first three principles regarding the governance of the commons. She talked about the importance of first, setting clear boundaries. Secondly, she also explained the necessity of matching rules regarding the use of the commons to local needs and conditions. And also ensuring that those affected by the rules can participate in adjusting them. To me, this is actually one of the most radical uses of blockchain, because it allows us to tap into the inner hierarchies and structures of power. The capacity for tokenization could be employed to readdress Latin power relations in these communities. This is something that relates to the work of J.K. Gibson Graham, a collective of feminist economic geographers who talk about interdependencies in a community. Catherine Gibson will explain more about it in the next episode. Interdependencies are the links between all the parts in a community, which are much more than just economic transactions they consider that not all market transactions are proportionally negotiated in a community. This means that there is no exact way to assess exchange. Let's say that you pay 20 euros for a meal, but how would you assess how much is the cost for care, conflict resolution or social innovation, for example? In this case, some blockchain scholars talk about the usefulness of blockchain-based tools for governance. Instead of narrowing the use of tokens to grant rights to access, we could consider their potential to address the imbalance of invisible labor.
3: How does this connect to Finet? So we could think, for example, of rules to cap the network if someone is misusing the network.
4: Through smart contracts and token design, blockchain can regulate, monitor, and graduate sanctions. This refers to Ostrom's fourth and fifth principle. Blockchain technologies could partially embed some of these governance rules into technological artefacts.
6: Raise your hand and give me something you want to bring up.
4: Blockchain can create rules that self enforce and formalise them, which means that we could regulate and monitor the participation in the common pool, and we could also adapt the sanctions to the misuses. The fourth principle is that the rule-making rights of community members should be respected by outside authorities. And the fifth one is that there should be a monitoring system for members' behavior, and most importantly, it is carried out by community members. In this case, it means that it would be outsourced to blockchain. But the way that it tracks their behavior is already defined by the community, who collectively decides on the rules before. And here's David Rothas again to explain the affordances in relation to these principles.
3: The third one is what we call autonomous automatization, is the use of DAOs, for example, through the transfer of resources between different nodes. So let's say a small node automatically sends more resources to a bigger node, because that's encoded in our federal smart contract. Fifth is increasing transparency and is the idea of opening the organizational processes and associated data, relying on some of the properties of the blockchain such as the persistency and immutability. Where we see the potential is actually to create trust between nodes rather than between individuals. And in order to do that, uh, it's completely necessary to be aware of the social, cultural practices of those communities. You have to integrate those as situated technology within the art.
4: Using these examples, David Rozas is referring to the sixth principle about the use of graduated sanctions for rule violations, meaning that they are proportional to the harm done. Some of these governance mechanisms would include those dedicated to conflict resolution, with the possibility to adapt them to local features. These ideas also link to the possibility of scaling up. Normally, scaling up communities involves increasing formalization and bureaucratization, but automating these processes means that scaling up can happen more quickly. This means that a large community with different locations could adapt the governance to the specifics of their needs. But of course, we should avoid the temptation of putting blockchains everywhere.
3: we felt sometimes that we are trying to put blockchains everywhere. And for most of the cases, it doesn't make sense. You don't need a blockchain at all.
4: Sometimes this is not the right technology for the job. Eileen Rutherford, a community artist based in Glasgow, was keen to integrate blockchain systems to organize the communities that she was working with. But instead, they decided to build their own system called String Figures. So String Figures is
7: very much... Uh... A prototype collaborative software that was developed with, so myself, a designer called Bettina Nissen, creative technologist Bob Moyler and groups of activists and artists, but artists working in a very kind of social activist kind of way in Glasgow. So it was very much about developing the technology stage by stage, working very closely with people who were most likely to use it. Not that it's only ever usable by the group of people who developed it, but trying to kind of really think carefully about how you design with a community and sort of grow things from the ground up. So it grew very much from a long-term project that I've been doing centred around a place called Govan Hill in Glasgow, called the People's Bank of Govan Hill, which I started in 2014. It's grown from a kind of very ad hoc one-woman experiments in how to put feminist economics into practice into quite a large-scale collaborative project. I think what I'll probably do is I'll guide you through the workshop process and you'll get an idea of what that workshop might look like. Given that it is a kind of little taster session in a bubble in a gallery, (laughs) then it might just be a little glimpse into the process. I began doing this research with Bettina in a space that I'd set up in Glasgow called the Swap Market, which is very much a non-monetary exchange space. We initially started looking at the potentials for blockchain and did a lot of work kind of exploring the potentials of that technology. And I think within about sort of six months of doing that research, decided that using blockchain really wasn't the right answer. There's a lot of concerns from a lot of angles that imposing a technology onto An alternative economy that functions actually quite well outside of the mainstream was maybe just about trying to control that. So we kind of decided to develop our own system. So String Figures is actually almost like a kind of attempt at a digital version of a a print block mapping process that I developed with a number of groups of women for kind of mapping out the existing economies in an area, how people interact and exchange already, how we kind of interrelate the interdependencies within a community, but also kind of where the gaps are and where we might like to connect a bit more. And then with string figures, we added in this way of trying to kind of identify and map what our collective commons might be. So what are the things that we have? What are the kind of community commons and how can we kind of access that? How could we decide together what they are? So if everybody could get... Um... I know that you're quite keen to talk about blockchain as well. I'm quite interested in talking about why we specifically chose not to use blockchain. But some of the things that we have ended up using within this software kind of take some of the, what I thought were the more interesting elements of working with the blockchain. So things like, how do you have a distributed ledger in a very, very simple way that is very low energy? <laughs> I'm really aware that blockchain is is quite an exciting thing for artists and designers and creative people, but I think it comes also with a lot of really big problems. And it was interesting like how very quickly, when we presented this stuff, how quickly people really picked up on that. You would have to employ a specialist in order to do this, and who would that be? Could that be somebody within our community? Probably not. We'd have to probably bring in somebody else (coughs) from outside. More than likely that was going to have to be a white man, because we couldn't find anyone who wasn't a white man who had the skills, so in a very kind of multicultural feminist project, that seemed massively problematic to give that level of control (laughs) to a white man. That wasn't a route we wanted to go down, but also, would anybody within our kind of space have the how are our ability to change that, or where was that information going, where was it held? Was it really distributed? Did any of us really have the capacity to hold that information, or access, it or understand it? Like, not really.
4: I really like Ely's project because, in a way, it is demystifying technology. Stream figures is a great tool to help us see the interdependencies in a community, which are all the relationships that make how a community functions possible. These are usually unrelated to the market and by acknowledging them and making them visible, they also acquire value. This idea comes from the anthropologist Marilyn Stratham, whose work focuses on the critique of Western understandings of gender inequality. In Eileen's work, we see how she looks for and develops very easy and adaptable tools. Shintarō Miyazaki could say that they are used in a communistic way. And by the way, this has nothing to do with communism. This is Sintero Miyazaki, junior professor in Digital Media Computation at Humboldt University in Berlin.
2: So in order to implement blockchain tech in a communist way, I think it needs to be highly adaptable and, of course, low-tech, affordable to people and communities who want to use it. So I think it is, at the moment, uh, not the ready uh, at for that kind of approach. Maybe the most uh, of these blockchain projects are because uh, what I learned is that they seem to build on this notion of security, of uh, for example, or so-called trust, and um, it's very high-tech. And, and therefore, I would say it's unaffordable and you cannot change how blockchain technology works. So the idea that you can um, track everything and all the changes right done to a blockchain and et cetera, and the transactions is quite nice, but uh, um, yeah, I think actually who needs that I think it's more important to work on means of communication protocols and rules and how things get decided more in general and uh, why and using digital technologies and computation, of course, and networking, but uh, more kind of in a careful way. Um, that seems to be more urgent than like with most of the blockchain projects kind of pursuing a sort of, I would say, a kind of a liberal patamogana, building on ideas such as value, contracts. Um, Secure ownership, trust, or even uh, price and uh, markets.
4: Shintero Miyazaki talks about the necessity to make the technologies easy and affordable. Otherwise, they can't be used by a wider public and become elitist. Let's imagine a small housing cooperative where members don't have any coding skills. Although the technology could be useful to manage the internal affairs, for example, the production of solar power. If the technology is too complicated and too expensive, why would they decide to use it?
0: Sovereignty, counter-hegemony, and comprehensive nature, these are the aspirations of this space. And when it meets reality, what we see is really not what the aspirations are. What we see is that there is no sovereignty, and the ecological costs of blockchains are just the least of it. But what we see in fact is that there is no technological isolation, there is no just another space where these ideas can develop independent from the existing structures.
6: Like blockchain discourse, the discourse in in the crypto community lacks a tremendous amount of intersectionality, nor does it draw on previous histories of currency or anything. It's like this strange vacuum for critical thought and also like intersectional discourse. I mean, as is much of the world of technology, but inviting other ways of knowing and uh, ways of operating into the room it just doesn't happen. So if it were to happen, I think you know designing alongside communities is one part of you know that invitation and also the working with commoning and is another way to reframe this context or provide cross-contextual references to a space that could otherwise be quite two-dimensional and essentially like copy paste a lot of yeah the dynamics that are decimating civilization as we know it.
4: More often than not, we are faced with a long threat of post- and anti-movements. Perhaps the best way to look at blockchain is not as anti-capitalist or hyper-financial. I like the idea of querying languages as a way to overcome concepts as binary oppositions. If we only look at blockchain in opposition to traditional systems, we miss a lot of the disruptive capacity. And as Sarasvati-Zubarnaman is very astute to point out, is that in order to build new technologies for communities, members of those communities need to be included in the development.
6: Yeah, continuing to invite discourse that is diverse, beginning to think about cultural constructs This is this critique I have of the 21st century in general and and the discourse that comes up is that you have decentralization, you have anti-capitalism, you you have anti-racist, you have like all of these terms that essentially walk you off a cliff of the imagination where all you have is looking at the past and looking at the thing you don't want in beginning to build what you do. But if you truly look to the past, and if you truly begin to actually even examine the now, you can see all kinds of examples of where you have imaginaries or realities that are not those things.
4: We see this with countless examples where the lack of diversity creates major issues in software and tech development, as whole segments of the population are not accounted for or represented. The cryptic community circles that she works on strives to embrace this diversity. This would
2: seem very attractive and convincing and this circle project, it seems to also be based on uh, really interesting ethics and it's against uh, profiteering and environmental harm. And it works just with a browser or uh, a smartphone uh, and their app and so it seems to be also accessible. So now um, people need to use it and yeah, we need to change it and also find out really how it works. Maybe then it, it's a good means to come together. And then once we came together, maybe we don't need it anymore. But I think it's like, maybe we just need more communication. So uh, maybe more like ancient uh, technologies, such as the telephone or a piece of paper, or uh, maybe email. Yeah, maybe we also we need to look to rethink uh, our means of communication through the notion of blockchain. Uh, maybe we already have similar things, of course, with language and with uh, memory and so on. So then also the question is, why do we really need uh, a new technology? And, and then when we find out, yeah, we, we really need it, then uh, what are the specific characters of this new
4: technologies? So, are we simply trying to cut and paste new technologies onto communication systems that already work? Emiliano Terre, Senior Lecturer in Media Ecologies and Social Transformation at Cardiff University, warns about the dangers of this.
1: We can appreciate that inserting a technology within a particular matrix, reconfigure other technology in multiple ways. And that the old ways of organizing, the old ways of making decisions, the old ways of constructing identities just don't suddenly disappear because one disruptive technology emerges. And this is particularly important, I think, in the case of blockchain. And then this rhetoric of inevitability, a kind of technological determinism, the way as technology will supposedly alter the fabric of society by itself, that's got that power without taking into account our agency, without taking into account our power to mold, to shape the course of technology and techno-utopianism, the way we celebrate and we always welcome and nation-emerging technologies with such an incredible enthusiasm. In reference to blockchain, algo-mysticism, you know, there's something magical, quasi-magical, in reference to how we tend to welcome Blockchain in our lives, what I've called the sublime of digital media activism, which connects to a long history of uh, media reflection on the power of the technological sublime, the way we tend to forget about the misgivings of technology because we are in awe of these technological developments. And of course, there's a lot to be in awe about with blockchain, distributed infrastructure a uh, web 3.0 revolution beyond social media, beyond intermediaries, transparent, public, uh, in a way going beyond these kind of environments that are kind of enclosing digital activism nowadays.
7: And there was like a question about how we get stuck maybe at not being able to imagine a kind of post-colonial, post-capitalist future. But I feel like the times when you really see that happening are actually it's small kind of localized examples and that maybe this is where I think the technology is interesting is allowing us to connect across small projects and the technology isn't about bringing something in it's about allowing us just to connect across a lot of these small radical alternatives to create a wider network that has a lot of very individual different components. It feels to me like always the really exciting and kind of radically different approaches are always ones that are growing from the ground up, growing within communities, things that evolve because people need them?
2: Yeah, of course, uh, you can learn a lot uh, from uh, also uh, open source communities and um, programming and coding um, offers many tools um, for activism and commoning. So we need to think more about these tools like algorithms and modeling as tools for thinking and uh, for theory, not only just to implement New networks, um, new uh, new tools. In that way, computational tools are also, uh, of course, interesting as tools for prefiguration, as they help us to also project right into the future. But again, yeah, here is also to remember that these tools are, of course, uh, those from masters. So we need to be careful and not just copy their like just do it mentality. Their positivism but always look at things from the side of those who are also acted upon, who are kind of then burdened by these
3: um, effects and what you do. We need to explore these boundaries. We need to explore these risks. We have to identify all these models and we have to do this trying to incorporate the culture and the social practices of the communities within the technology, a situated technology. So it's basically time to go to the field, which is what we have been doing (laughs)
5: lately.
4: In this episode, we delve deeper into the social uses of blockchain technology, using the examples of David Roza's research in Wi-Fi Cable Network to explain how it could be used to support commons-oriented economies. But we were also made aware of the many issues surrounding the potential development of the technology. I don't want to be pessimistic, but I do want to provide a realistic perspective on the future of the technology. When I was researching this project, I decided not only to focus on developers, but also to look at different angles away from the mainstream crypto circles as a way to offer alternative perspectives. So that's why we also hear from artists who are working in this space. One of the key themes that comes up when we think about blockchain technologies is the notion of value and what do we value and how. In the next episode, we will take a look at how blockchain allow us to think our relationship to economy and how it can potentially restore agency. The White Papers on Design podcast was produced and narrated by me, Barbara Cueto, with audio production and sound design by Lucia Skatsokio from Social Broadcast. It was supported by a Museum and Creative Industries Funds in the Netherlands.